Welcome to As I Live and Grieve, a podcast that tells the truth about how hard this is. We're glad you joined us today. We know how hard it is to lose someone you love and how well-intentioned friends and family try so hard to comfort us. We created this podcast to provide you with comfort, knowledge, and support. We are grief advocates, not professionals, not licensed therapists. We are you. Today we are speaking with Dr. Terry Daniel. Dr. Daniel is an end-of-life educator, an interfaith clinical chaplain, and a trauma specialist certified in death, dying, and bereavement by the Association for Death Education and Counseling, and in trauma counseling by the International Association of Trauma Professionals. She conducts workshops worldwide for bereaved individuals and bereavement professionals, teaching meditative, ceremonial, and therapeutic processes that focus on inner transformation rather than external events. Her work is acclaimed by physicians, hospice workers, grief counselors, and clergy for its investigation into the relationship between spirituality and psychology. She is the founder of the Conference on Death and Afterlife Studies and the Ask Dr. Death podcast. Terry has a BA in Religious Studies from Merrill Hurst University, an MA in Pastoral Care from Fordham University, and a Doctor of Ministry in Pastoral Care and Counseling from the San Francisco Theological Seminary. She joins us today on As I Live and Grieve to discuss bereavement and bad theology, a toxic cocktail. Welcome, Dr. Terry. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. And I must say the subject intrigues me a great deal. Yes. You know, it's a subject that needs to be talked about. And of course, it's such a sacred cow. You know, you're not supposed to talk about religion and politics, of course. But (laughs) when you work with death and loss and subsequently bereavement, it is impossible to separate embedded religious beliefs from a grief response. And you could be the most non-religious person in the world, die-hard, card-carrying, atheist, agnostic, Unitarian, whatever. And yet when you're coping with loss and grief, because of what we've absorbed from family and culture, there are going to be religious beliefs kind of sneaking in there, having an impact on how you respond. Right. And if you yourself don't bring those in, someone else in your family or your network is likely to, correct? Absolutely. I would say guaranteed to. Even if it's a stranger, even if you're in the hospital and it's a nurse or somebody, somebody's going to say, God bless the person or she's in heaven now or something really stupid like God needed another flower in his garden. I've heard that before. (laughs) Generally, nurses and, you know, clinical people are trained not to say things like that, but it's just going to be everywhere. Yeah, I would agree. And I never really thought about that so much. So when I think back several years ago when my husband passed, I do remember now that there were some of those comments made. And at the time, I almost couldn't decide whether to be offended or in a way, they, they kind of hurt because it, it kind of caused friction, I think, in, in some of my own beliefs. And I wasn't quite sure what to do about it. That's a really good point. And so if you going back into chaplaincy, which is what I do, I'm a hospice chaplain. And right. chaplain is not the same as a minister or a pastor. Yeah. But a lot of people don't know that, including some chaplains. 
<laughs> and, and so as a chaplain, we are trained to literally not bring religion into any conversation unless the person specifically says, I'm a Christian, I'm Catholic, would you do this thing or that prayer or that ceremony? But other than that, we never walk in to a conversation bringing any sort of religion with us. That is the absolutely right. correct definition of a chaplain. Good number of chaplains have no respect for that boundary and uh, will will bring their religious beliefs into things. But it's, when done right, it's an excellent model for everybody to follow when supporting somebody through grief is to just leave the whole religion thing out of it and let the person that you're supporting lead you. So if the grieving mother is saying, I'm so glad my child is with Jesus now, there's your cue. Now you know what to say and wh what range you can be in with her. But you just, yeah, you just never just throw that in. So you always let the grieving person lead. Right. Yeah. Now our listeners may be a little curious, so I want to make sure we clarify a bit. When we say bad theology, mm -hmm. and I've also seen in some of your different write-ups, whether it's a book review or whatever, I've seen the phrase toxic theology. Can you kind of clarify for our listeners what you mean by that? I can definitely do that. So I've done a lot of research on this and written papers on it. My doctoral dissertation was on this. And there's a lot of academic research in psychology and theology studies about toxic theology. There's also a lot of research about complicated grief, which is different right. than healthy grief. We can talk about that later. But there's almost nothing that ties the two of them together. So that's kind of what I've been working on. So some scholars have defined toxic theology uh, with these kind of bullet points. So it's a theology that has a form of emotional, spiritual, moral, and sometimes even physical violence and power abuse. And, you know, the, the basic uh, foundations of Christianity are based on physical violence. If you look at the crucifixion of Jesus, right? Okay. Suffering is noble. Um, you know, the theology that got built up later as the church was formed is that, you know, we're intrinsically sinful and evil and self self-loathing is kind of built into it. So um, another point uh, is toxic theology compromise emotional and mental health and can be connected to mental and emotional dysfunction. Uh, it can exist on a spectrum from mildly unhealthy to extremely harmful. And I'll give you examples when I finish okay. going down this list. And a toxic theology system is one that undermines uh, your emotional balance. It expresses itself in beliefs, attitudes, and relationships with different degrees of toxicity. Okay, so that's basically it. So let me give you some examples. Okay. And this is all from, you know, work that I've done with patients in the hospital, hospice patients, families, grieving people. Mm -hmm. So one woman that I've worked with, her nine-year-old son died from leukemia. And she obviously was in horrible, terrible grief. But she also believed that God was punishing her because 20 years earlier, she'd had an abortion. Mm. And so her theology said, you know, that, you know, an eye for an eye, you know, God took one right. because she aborted the other one. And she knew that that was stupid and not rational, but it just was gnawing at her all the sure. time. 
like I did this because I had an abortion. I had this child with leukemia and had to go through this, and we all suffered so much. Mm -hmm. Another uh, woman I encountered at a conference told me she had all four of her children had died in separate, unrelated events over the course of 25 years. One was, I don't remember the details, but maybe a stillborn baby. Then another one got hit by a car. And then another one got in a motorcycle accident. Another one died in war over the course of her life. And she said to me, I thought if I was a good person, if I was a good Christian, if I pleased God, that was the language she used, if I pleased God, then I would be protected and things like this would not happen to me. So what did I do to displease God? She asked me. That's an incredibly toxic theology. And look at the burden that this poor woman is living with. And so my answer to her when she asked me, why would God do this to me if I'm a good person and I please God? And my answer to her is, it depends what you think God is. So if your definition of God is a man in the sky or an invisible force or whatever that watches you, has an opinion about you, punishes you, that's that's toxic right there. Right. And that's really the foundation of G- Judeo-Christian theology in a nutshell, right? Right. That's usually what we're taught. Yes. Well, not everyone, but I know I was. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a particular denomination, and that was the representation of God that I grew up with as a child, really. Yeah. And, and you know, I was raised, my family was Jewish, but they weren't religious at all. And I didn't have any real indoctrination except celebrating Hanukkah, you know, and stuff like that. But I grew up with that image, too. I don't know where I got it, you know, from movies, from, I mean, you know, Santa Claus is kind of like that God. Right. Right. He knows if you've been sleeping, he knows if you've been good or bad, and you get rewarded good in a lump of coal if you're bad, which is based on the God of the Old Testament. I remember my great grandmother who come who was from the old country. She was very religious, Jewish, and she came here from Russia. And she had a picture in her house, like a painting, like an oil painting of Moses. And it used to scare me. You know, I'd walk into her house. It was like an old great grandmother's old lady house. Right. And this scary looking picture and it's Moses with the Ten Commandments. And I realize now, when I think back about that picture, it's Charlton Heston. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that story. That's great. Yeah. And I, and I was terrified of that picture when I was a child because yeah. it looked like God. That's what I thought God looked like. Sure. And if you ask little kids, especially kids in religious school, to draw a picture of God, that's what they're going to draw. Yeah. Most of the time. Yeah. That's that's true. And we've we've talked in other episodes of our podcast about children and grieving and things like that and how they are molded, if you will, from their parents as role models. Yeah. And it it seems to me, my opinion only, that in today's society there are not as many stolid Christians or solid churchgoers, even for any denomination, so that in more and more families, children are growing up not really knowing or even hearing about a God or Jesus until a death might happen in the family. And then one of the first things they hear is, 
oh, they're with Jesus now, or they're with God now, and things like that. And it, it bothers me to a great extent that what usually happens is the parents, grieving themselves perhaps, might just offer a very basic story. Uh, as you said before, you know, well, no, they're with God now. God needed a a good choir member or whatever. And this is what the kids get. And then years and years later, they themselves may begin to question their own beliefs. So in answer to your questions, Kathy, which are excellent, and you just brought up a whole bunch of really yes. good points that I love to address. So the first thing you asked about is children being indoctrinated. Right. What they're told in childhood. So here's what happens. And of course, I can only speak about American culture because that's what I know best. I'm sure this is true in other cultures as well. Most of us get our religious education when we're two, three, four, five, six years old. And that, you know, whether we go to Hebrew school or catechism or what, doesn't matter. Um, we're picking it up from family and culture. And so we're given this image of God as children. Right. And we just kind of accept it without question because we never, we, why should we? We never think about it again. Okay, all right, all right. And then there's Christmas and Santa right. brings presents and then we go to church and we, and then there's Jesus and there's Hanukkah and there's Passover and Moses and the Egyptians. I mean, we have this whole story, right? And so, you know, the thing about kids is they'll believe anything you tell them. Right. Right. You know, they believe cartoons, animals can talk, horses can fly, right? That's childhood. And so, so here you have a child and this is in their mind and they don't understand it and they don't have to. It's just what it is. So most people don't think about that theology, which we call their embedded theology or inherited theology. Most people don't think about that ever until, as you said, something bad happens. And so, you know, you learn this when you're five and now you're 55 and you have cancer. And all of a sudden you're gonna you're gonna go back to your theology to look for an answer or some sort of meaning. And what do you have to refer to? Nothing useful. And so I see this all the time with uh, people. They have no spiritual tools that they can really rely on to help them cope with loss, other than a five-year-old's view of the divine and of you know cosmology. And so another thing about uh, children that you asked is, I can't remember, but uh, Stephanie mentioned to me when we were off the air for a minute about a video that I show on a lot of my websites and in a lot of my presentations about this child, this boy named Kyler Bradley, who uh, had brain cancer. And the local TV news came to his school and did a segment about him. And uh, I can send you a link to the actual news reporter. You can Google Kyler, K-Y-L-E-R, Bradley, and you'll, you'll find several things. But look for this news report where they're in his classroom with him and his friends. And the news reporter is saying, here's Kyler. He just got diagnosed with this disease, and his teacher is telling all the children to pray for him. And then she interviews the kids, and they're 10. Mm. And they're saying, well... You know, God, if we ask God to take care of him and save him, God will listen. And all the kids are saying this, and the teacher is the one who told them this. Well, this kid died like 10 days after that segment was made. So where does that leave us? 
And, right. So every one of those children, now they're grieving right. a 10 year old classmate, which is not a normal childhood experience. So it's extremely more traumatic than if grandma dies. And they're saying to their parents, what happened? You told me that if I pray, yeah. that, you know, God didn't listen. So now the seeds of toxic theology are firmly planted. And as a parent, I can only imagine, like, if one of my, if it was one of my children in that classroom coming home and asking me, you know, I, I prayed for him, but, you know, why didn't it work? I, I, what would you say to your child? I have no idea. I would have to really think about that one. <laughs> yes. You know, it's, that's tough. Yes. And I, I've always been yes. one to just, to not, um, well, we, we were talking quick on the break about how grandma, mom, was yes. religious when you went to church every Sunday. This is what you did. And I would occasionally challenge her on things and it infuriated her <laughs> at the fact that I was thinking that there could be something else out there, you know, to believe in or whatever. But so I try not to put that on to my children. And I have always been one to say, I guess my first would be, well, what do you, what do you believe? What do you think happens? Or, you know, just to kind of get what's in their head because they have such great imaginations, but you know, it's, it's just nice to understand what maybe they think happens first, but I don't know how I would handle that. You know, definitely puts the parent in the hot seat. Yeah, this does. But your, your strategy is a really good one. So, you know, when you're having any kind of discussion with anybody about this, you always start out by asking them to define how they see it first. Right. If you know what you're dealing with. Of course, the kid is going to see it exactly the way you taught him to see it. Right. Right. Or his friends on the school. His friends. Or yeah. Him, yeah. You know, and <laughs> grandma might be teaching him something completely different. Right. Yeah. So uh, he's going to be, these kids are going to be really confused. So it's good to, you know, and then the, the kid will probably say, you know, kind of a conglomeration of the various views. Well, you know, God made everything and God controls everything. And if we're good, God will protect us. I think maybe that's what a kid would say. Mm-hmm. And then the next thought is, well, I guess I wasn't good enough. Right. right. I didn't pray hard enough or often enough. And they start to feel guilty. Right. And you don't have to be a kid to, to have that experience. I mean, this happens to oh, no. adults too. Yep. Oh, no. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, now you mentioned earlier that you, you brought in the phrase complicated grief. Mm -hmm. So when you have the, this problem of conflicting issues, conflicting beliefs or something you thought was true suddenly being brought into question, is that what turns into then a complicated grief? It's one of the things. So complicated okay. grief is a known pathological, you know, researched thing. It's a thing, right? And it's even a diagnosis in the okay. DSM-5. You know, your therapist can diagnose right. complicated grief. And there are many factors that lead to that. And so, you know, if if you had, say, let's say you were in an abusive marriage and your husband was a terrible person who beat you and was horrible and then he died. That's a factor for complicated grief because there's a, a difficult relationship with the deceased. Could be your mother right, or anybody. Right. So if you really kind of hated this person, but you're supposed to grieve, that's a factor. If it was a violent death, murder, 
that is a factor. These are all factors that can lead to complicated grief. It doesn't look always going to be. It's socially unacceptable death. Like, let's say your 25-year-old son got killed while robbing a liquor store. Okay? Socially unacceptable death. Or a gay person who died of AIDS. You know, I mean, any of these things that society would disapprove of. I often think about, you know, when there's a mass shooting, which unfortunately there is all the time. The guy who did the shooting, you know, we all hate him. But he has a mother. Right. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that. And years ago, I read a wonderful book. It was fiction. But I often wondered about the perspective of the mother. Yeah. Because after all, that's still her child. Yeah. And I, I wondered about that. Well, there's a wonderful book out written by Lionel Shriver called We Need to Talk About Kevin. Such mm-hmm. a good book. And her son, Kevin, was, well, I don't know what the diagnoses were, but Kevin was clearly a troubled child and wound up the um, being responsible for a school shooting. But in the course of his life, he also killed his sister mm-hmm. and his father. Mm. And but it was all the entire book was a series of letters written by the mother, which I found fascinating. Yes. In fact, when I finished the book, I said to Stephanie, you have to read this book. You have to read this book. Because today, years later, the impact of this book still yeah. sits with me. You should, I still you should think find her and have her on your show. <laughs> oh, well, you know, I never thought about that. That's a great idea now that you mentioned this. <laughs> yeah, so, so um, you know, think of her complicated grief. Right. You know, so, so all of these are factors. Death of a child in any circumstance is a factor right. complicated. There's a whole list of factors, okay? So if you have right. an estranged relationship, socially unacceptable relationship, violence, right. all of that, all of these factors can go into the pot. There's also a person's innate resilience. So some people, if you took two people who had exactly the same identical life, I don't know if that's possible, but the same experiences, like father died when you were three, mother died when you were 20, everything matched up. Those two people are going to respond differently because they have different innate capabilities for resilience. And so, for example, one of the characteristics of resilience is if you're a person who is good at communicating, that you can verbalize and you're comfortable speaking about your feelings and reaching out to people. Another one is that you're a decisive person who can see a problem, see a solution, and take action. Some people are better at that than others. So if you're not good at those skills, that's yet another thing can contribute to complicated grief, which I haven't even defined yet, which I will in a minute. So when I did my research on this for my book, my new book, Grief and God, When Religion Does More Harm Than Healing, I realized that there was all these academics and theorists and well-respected people talking about the risk factors for complicated grief, and nowhere did anybody have religious belief on those lists. Really? Yeah. As far as I know, I'm the first person to put those two together. I'm sure somewhere somebody did, but... I couldn't find it in all of my research. So my stance now is that these religious beliefs can also contribute to complicated grief. For example, how many people believe that all suicides go to hell? Right. A lot. And do you know, for my book, I interviewed a couple of Catholic priests and they said, the church doesn't even say that anymore. Right. That's not even an official church policy, but 
there's so many things that the church does. It used to be, though. Yeah, it used to be. I remember hearing that as a child. Yeah. And even though it's not anymore, even if the Pope said, you know, this is no more, people are still going to believe it because it's been indoctrinated. Mm -hmm. Sure. So if you have a belief like that, you know, it, what it will do and all these other features that I just described will complicate the grief process. And what that means is that the healing process doesn't go according to a normal expected trajectory of healing. And the best way to understand that is to look at, let's say you have gallbladder surgery. You're a reasonably healthy person, everything's pretty normal. And in the middle of the surgery, the doctor leaves a gauze pad inside your body. (laughs) So that means your surgery had complications. Mm -hmm. Sure. That's exact. So think of it that way. A normal process, something got in there that redirected it into, and now it has complications. That's a great analogy. Yeah. And so what complicated grief looks like is, first of all, we have to understand that grief is normal. There's nothing pathological about grief. Right. And so when, when you lose something, not just a death, you're going to grieve. You're going to cry. You're going to be sad. Your life is going to be upside down. It's going to take you a while to gain your equilibrium. All perfectly normal. Mm-hmm. However, if, for instance, your 90-year-old mother dies, which is supposed to happen, mm-hmm. yeah. and you go into a deep depression and you cry every day for six months or longer, if you're angry at the world, if you just can't get restored to life again, that's complicated right. grief. Right, right. And um, with children, you know, it's it's longer, it's a different kind of trajectory other than that. But, you know, I deal with bereaved parents all the time and I see terrible complicated grief. And, you know, one man I worked with, his son was uh, died in a car crash with the mom who was driving drunk and the kid wasn't in a car seat. He was three years old oh, and the mom lived and the father went to the child's grave. At this point, it had been three years when I talked to him. He was going to the grave every day and screaming at God and screaming at Satan for doing this terrible thing and saying to God, can I make a deal with you? Can you bring my son back? You know, take, kill me instead. And this man eventually had a terrible car crash of his own and was in the hospital for like a year. Anyway, all of that is theology stuff. And that's what complicated grief looks like. Okay. That, you know, it makes far more sense now than when I originally started thinking about this, as we talked about you being a guest. Now, one of the the goals, if you will, of our podcast is to make death and grieving a more comfortable topic for discussion. So if we encounter someone or encounter this issue of bad theology or theology getting in the way of grief, do you have any suggestions for us, us about how we might broach the issue and try to help someone? How to help someone else or how to help ourselves? All right, both. Well, let's start with helping ourselves. And I think probably most of your listeners have already done this, but, you know, expand your vision. Uh, One of the things that makes this easy is that we have a multicultural world right now. We have the Internet. We can, with the click of a mouse, watch, you know, a funeral from Ghana 
in Africa, or a church service from the Greek Orthodox, or a Japanese Buddhist meditation about death. I mean, there's so much stuff out there, and it's all available to us. So I would suggest if you want to step outside of that theological box that's causing you difficulty, start by seeing what other people do. What do they do in China? What do they do in Tibet? What do they do in, in Mexico? You know, all of this. And when you start to look at all these uh, rituals and beliefs and cosmologies and you see how different they are, you, you're actually studying comparative religion, which is another thing you could do. Go take a comparative religious class, you know, take, come to some of my seminars, you know, and, and study some of this stuff. And, and this applies to trying to help someone else too, but you can't help another person. You know, you can't tell somebody to do these things. So we're going right. to focus on, on us. Something that's really interesting is you can look up Fowler's Stages of Faith Development. That's James Fowler, F-O-W-L-E-R. And I can send you links to this. And this was a psychologist who back in the 70s Based on, um, if you've ever studied psychology, you know about the stages of cognitive develop, like, uh, development, like Eric Erickson, you know, the stages everybody does is like, at age two, a child can think this way. At age seven, their thinking does this and that, all the way through old age. So what Fowler did is he took that and he applied it to the different ways that we understand God and the divine. Oh. And so in, in the early stages, which he calls mythic literal stage, that's about a four-year-old. And that's kind of where we are, what I was saying before, that we learned in Sunday school, that we never grow up. Okay. And a lot of it is, he. Uh, there is an example, it didn't come from him, of a four-year-old kid and his dad are walking on the beach and they find a dead seagull. The kid says, what happened to the bird, daddy? And the daddy says, well, it died and it went to heaven. So the kid looks up in the sky where heaven is and looks down on the ground where the dead bird is. And he says, did God throw it back down? Oh, oh. See, that's, I love the minds of children, how they think. Yeah. But it's completely literal. Yeah. Sure. Heaven is up there. There's a guy up there called God. For some reason, he took this bird and threw it back. <laughs> you know, they, at that age, they don't have the cognitive ability to understand symbolism. Right. right. Sure. So Fowler went through all of this. And so like the next stage is uh, a little better than that, where you're able to start interpreting symbols a little, but you still want to belong to your community. And this goes right. all the way up into the teenage years, because what's the most important thing for a 13 year old is belonging with their friends and everything. Right. And so you kind of wonder, you, you kind of know that nobody threw the bird down from the sky, but you also kind of have to go along with what your community believes if you want to belong. Right. Because how else do you explain it? And you don't want to say it because everybody would laugh at you. Right. Or, or depending on the community, I mean, if you're, you know, in an evangelical Christian community or Amish, you can get shunned. Oh, sure. And thrown out of the community, and, and you need your community. Yeah, I have many regrets that when I was in my late teens or even my early 20s, that I didn't even have the thought to question things. 
I guess I was just too busy living life. But it's only been probably within my last 20 years that I've started to question a lot of it mm-hmm. and think, well, I know other people don't believe everything I believe. So what else is out there? And I've learned so much. I really, really enjoyed your perspective today. It's helped me in a lot of ways. And I definitely want to get more information. I think we're running out of time. For okay. Today, and I don't, I don't want to wrap up without offering you a chance to tell our listeners what you might offer, what services or your website or mention your conference, your books, anything you wish to do. Yeah. And I want to also extend to you an opportunity to come back. I I think you're fascinating to listen to. And I know you have so much more that I would love to hear. So first, let me just kind of turn the mic over to you, so to speak. (laughs) And you can inform our listeners a little bit more, tell them anything you want. Okay, thank you. Well, right now I'm really big on letting people know about the Afterlife Conference, which is we're now in our 11th year. It's uh, 2021 right now. And uh, we were online last year because of COVID instead of live. And we're going to be online again this year. So uh, for information on that, go to afterlifeconference.com. If any of you listeners have paid any attention to afterlife research, near-death experience research, all of that. Every well-known leader in those fields has spoken at our conference at one time or another, many of them two or three times. Mm-hmm. So this is you know, where you're going to get some great information. And we've expanded over the years. Where, and we have mediums and shamans who lead guided out-of-body journeys. And we have all that mystical stuff. But we've also, you know, we include academic stuff. So we have medical doctors, we have hospice doctors, psychologists, religious scholars. So we're just covering everything from A to Z on death and afterlife. So that's afterlifeconference.com. I have a podcast called Ask Dr. Death. And that's doctor spelled out, D-O-C-T-O-R, because Dr. D-R is Jack Kevorkian. So we don't want to be confused with that. So it's askdrdeath.com, and we have really great interviews with all of the people I mentioned and others. And, uh, oh, and my other website is spiritualityandgrief.com, and that's where you'll find my workshops. Uh, Before COVID, I was traveling all around the country doing workshops. Now I do them online. I have a grief support group online that meets four times a year. So you'll find that on there. And on all of these pages, you'll find a link to click to sign on the email list. And that way you'll get my newsletter called The Afterlife Advocate. And you'll get announcements of all the stuff that's going on. Thank you so much. I I am now a subscriber to your newsletter. And I will be listening to your podcast, too. The issues that I have read on your websites and everything and in your books are fascinating to me so i want to know more about oh thank you and and related to what we're talking about today my new book is called grief and god when religion does more harm than healing which talks about exactly what we're talking about and that you can find it's on my list and i expect will be on my stand within a couple weeks in my reading pile or maybe if it's available in the audio book i listen to a lot of those as well your conference is intriguing to me as well so i want to uh 
pop in there and see maybe um, if I can register for your conference. There just seems to be a lot of material. It would be fascinating. Uh, I did look quickly at some of the speakers for this year, and it, it does. The, the topics are very, very intriguing to me. So again, unfortunately, we're about out of time today. I thank you so, so much. I know you're a busy, busy woman, just as evidenced by everything you told our listeners and even listening to your bio. It's, I hate to use the word fascinating again. I really should have a thesaurus handy so I can find a better word. But honestly, you have awakened a corner of my mind that makes me want to expand my horizons and learn more so that I can better understand just life in general and understand the things that maybe I've missed in all the years so far. I guess the only thing left then is for me to say thank you again. Thank you to our listeners and join us next week as we continue to live and breathe. Thank you so much for listening with us today. Do you have a topic that you'd like us to cover or do you have a question from one of our episodes? Please email us at info at asiliveandgrieve.com and let us know. We hope you will find a moment to leave a review, send an email, and share with others. Join us next time as we continue to live and grieve together.